Good morning. It's good to be here. Appreciated the singing as well. Um, this morning, I've titled the message "Offenses Will Come," and I realize that sounds kind of negative. And it's taken from Luke chapter 17. That's where the, I guess, most of this message comes from. Luke chapter 17, and it's taken from verse 1 where, where Jesus says to his disciples, It is impossible that no offenses should come, but woe to him through whom they do come. Now, this topic is pretty big, and I recognize that with the time we have here, we're probably not going to cover everything. Um, so, I want to start off by saying that Basically, relationships are very important, and we see that throughout the whole Bible. Relate, our relationship with God, that is important to God, and, and He cares about how we relate to others as well. And I wanted to... We have, we have this book at home. It's a children's book. It's called Thomas Helps Out. And it, it starts out with Thomas's whistle not working well and I'll play that for you. It's got little sound effects as well. So, so his whistle isn't working very well. So he's on his way to the roundhouse to get that fixed and I don't know. Does anyone have this book? It's he as as he's on his way to the roundhouse he helps many of his friends and then at, at the very end of course his his whistle's fixed and it and it says, Sir Topham Hatt tells him this. Helping others is important, and it doesn't hurt a bit. So that's the, the lesson from this book. <clears throat> Helping others is important, and it doesn't hurt a bit. Well, I, that's a good message, I think. But I wondered, is the not hurting a bit entirely accurate? And I thought of Kendall. He was telling me a story recently that he stopped in here at the church and Harold was in the gym pulling the well pump all by himself. So Kendall helped him out and helped him pull that. Well, I thought, well, I'm guessing if we asked him, his back was probably hurting a little bit after he got done, probably both their backs. So, um, But I would like to rephrase that statement that he made while helping others is important, forgiving brothers is more important, and unfortunately it's going to hurt a little bit. And that's kind of where we're going with this this morning. And the, the first point I'd like to make is that in chemistry, and Derek could probably explain this better than I can, but there's, back in the, I think it was the 14th century, scientists discovered that if you there were, they discovered this litmus, a mixture of organic compounds that you get from lichen, that when that it turns red when there's an acidic compound and it turns blue if it's an alkaline compound. And that was extremely important to know when you're doing chemistry and testing solutions. And then six centuries later, people started using that figuratively, well, you know, this is a litmus test, and it's, it refers to 
um, any single factor that establishes the true character of something. So to reword that, it basically means when we use it figuratively, it's a test of something in question based on a proven and established method and the result of the test establishes the truth of the unknown. So I'm going to suggest this morning that the litmus test for an acid, obviously, is, the, is a litmus test, but the figurative in the Christian, or at least one litmus test, the offense test, can be a true indicator of whether we're a follower of Jesus. Um, in our lesson last Sunday, our Sunday school lesson was taken from Matthew 6, where Jesus gave the disciples the, the Lord's Prayer, and right after that prayer, he said, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So what we're going to be looking at this morning is forgiveness. Um, and the, the first observation is our willingness and ability to forgive is one of the litmus tests we can use to determine if we are in fact a disciple of Christ. Now I'll insert a small caution here that we obviously we recognize that as you look through scripture, it's clear that simply going around forgiving everybody is not what saves us, but just a clear indicator that we have the spirit working within us. And the first text we want to look at is taken from Luke 17, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 5 of Luke 17. Then he said to the disciples, It is impossible that no offenses should come, but woe to him through whom they do come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. Take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns to you, saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. And the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. Now I would ask if that process sounds painless. I expect you would say that doesn't sound entirely painless. And I think that's why the disciples said, Lord, increase our faith. This is going to be difficult. So we know we're commanded to forgive. So how do we know if we're forgiving as God would have us to? And as an introduction, we, we have to first recognize the sad fact that forgiveness, as beautiful as it is and can be, was and is necessitated by sin. Um, basically, an offense occurs and there's brokenness, broken relationships, and we're, we're reminded, you know, Adam and Eve, the first broken relationship with God, and we think of Cain and Abel and their broken relationship, which ended up resulting in murder. And I thought of Joseph and his brothers and the, the brokenness there. And I don't need to ask for a raise of hands this morning if anyone here has ever been offended or has offended someone. I think it would be unanimous that we've all experienced that in our lives. And some offenses occur through sin, and some offenses maybe occur through innocent 
you know, or misperceived things. Um, but no matter what causes the, the brokenness or unreconciled state, the Bible is very clear that we're, we are, as Christians, called to forgive. So maybe we should try to define forgiveness a bit here. And this can be difficult because um, it's often, I think, misunderstood. There are many books out there that, that talk about forgiveness. And sadly, many of them approach it from kind of a selfish, humanistic approach. Um, so if, if you were, if I asked you to define forgiveness this morning, what would, how would you go about defining that? Um, we could attempt to define what it does, kind of start the phrase, forgiveness is a process whereby this happens, or we could try to define it by what, what is it if you boil everything else away, what is, what is left? Is it a feeling? And is it simply a feeling? I feel forgiven, forgiving toward that individual, so I must have forgiven him. Unfortunately, the Bible never mentions specifically having forgiving feelings. Uh, it, clearly, it commands us to forgive whether we feel forgiving. Um, let Paul and Ephesians gives us a little help, maybe, in, in helping us define what forgiveness is. In chapter 4 of Ephesians, verse 32, he says, And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God and Christ forgave you. So I'm going to suggest that maybe the key to understanding what forgiveness is, is to understand how God forgives and then model our forgiveness after his forgiveness. That would seem safe to me. So how does God forgive? There's two Old Testament references. One is in Isaiah where he says, I, even I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. And there's another one in Jeremiah that says, No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. So when God forgives, he goes on record and says so. He says he will not remember our sins. So, so maybe forgiveness is a promise or commitment by God not to remember our sins against us. Now, we know that God can't forget, obviously. That would be a human frailty that, that would haunt us as humans, but he chooses not to remember. He will bury them, and he will no longer hold our sins against us. So a simple definition for forgiveness is simply a promise or commitment not to remember those sins against someone. There's a guy by the name of Chris Braun that wrote a book called Unpacking Forgiveness. He defines it this way, a commitment by the offended to pardon graciously the repentant from moral liability and to be reconciled to that person, although not all consequences are necessarily eliminated. 
And I think that that's a pretty good definition of forgiveness. So we want to, before we get too far, we want to look at two principles of God's forgiveness or two aspects of God's forgiveness. The first thing is that God's offer of forgiveness is gracious. And we'll read Ephesians 4.32 again. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God and Christ forgave you. Therefore, as the elect, and this is Colossians 3.12, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. Now, in these two verses, he uses a little bit of a different verb or form for that word. It could just as easily have been translated, instead of forgive, it could be translated grace. So it could be said, God is gracious toward you, so you should be gracious toward others. The gracious offer of forgiveness is to be unconditional, and it's offered to everyone. This is what Jesus modeled on the cross when he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And then the second aspect of God's forgiveness, which may seem like a, the opposite of what we just learned, is that God's forgiveness is conditional. Or you might say the promise is conditional upon the repentance of the offender. And this is obviously one of the points that can be somewhat contentious, maybe, or disagreed on. Many um, people in, in the books they write would, would teach that we must forgive another even when that person clearly does not intend to seek forgiveness. And one of, an example of that is an author by the name of David Augsburger who wrote, Christ's way was the way of giving forgiveness even before asked, and even when it was not or never would be asked for by another. And you, you could ask, so is that, are we forgiven by God even without asking for forgiveness? And then he cites the Lord's, or the prayer on the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And there's some other disturbing I guess, beliefs out there um, that we need to forgive animals and we need to forgive the dead and ask for their forgiveness. Um, So that's how, I guess, you could say unconditional forgiveness can kind of lead you down that that path. And I'll note, how do we explain the, the prayer on the cross? What was Jesus doing there? And... I think it's explained by the fact that he wasn't forgiving them. He was praying for their forgiveness. Um, There are other instances in the Gospels where Jesus clearly forgives. And he, you know, he says, your sins sins be forgiven you. Um, And one instance of that is as he hung on the cross, he turned to the thief beside him and said that he would be with him in paradise. Um, 
so you can say, what's what's the big deal about you know unconditional conditional forgiveness approach? There was a book written, I think it was in the early '80s, by a man named Smeeds, Lewis Smeeds. It was entitled "Forgive and Forget: Healing the Hurts We Don't Deserve," and Smeeds defined forgiveness as ceasing to feel resentment or anger over an offense or perceived offense. And there was another man that summarized his views, Gregory Jones. He said, according to Smeeds, forgiveness becomes a means of being healed of your hate, of which Smeeds argues people have a right to be healed. Smeeds internalizes and privatizes forgiveness by making it primarily an activity that goes on within individual persons' hearts and minds. So we'll, f- we'll refer to this belief as the therapeutic forgiveness. And it, it sounds somewhat appealing. What could be wrong with just going around forgiving everybody and internally? I mean, that sounds pretty uh, therapeutic. And so let's, I thought we'd look at I'll give you a list of what therapeutic forgiveness says and what biblical forgiveness would say. Um, The therapeutic method would say forgiveness is a feeling, but biblical forgiveness says forgiveness is a commitment to pardon the offender. Therapeutic forgiveness says forgiveness is private or individual, and biblical forgiveness is something that happens between two parties. Therapeutic forgiveness says forgiveness is unconditional. Biblical forgiveness is conditioned upon repentance. Uh, Therapeutic forgiveness says that it's motivated primarily by self-interest or for your own sake. Biblical forgiveness is motivated by love for neighbor and love for God. It is for God's glory and our joy. And therapeutic forgiveness says a standard of justice is not critical. It's about how the person feels. According to this definition, you can legitimately choose to forgive someone who has not done anything wrong. And biblical forgiveness would say that justice is the basis for forgiveness. You cannot legitimately forgive someone if he or she has not done anything wrong according to God's standards. And then therapeutic forgiveness says that forgiveness can happen apart from reconciliation, but biblical forgiveness is inextricably connected to reconciliation. So people that defend the therapeutic method or definition, their most often raised objection is that if we don't automatically forgive people, we'll become bitter. But as we noted earlier, Christians must graciously offer forgiveness to all people, just as God offers forgiveness to all people. A Christian who loves and offers grace is not bitter. So you may ask, what's, what's the big deal? One says that, that everyone should be forgiven, and the other says that all should be offered forgiveness. So there's some dangers to the one approach. Um, And I'll just list a a few. 
the first danger, number one, that this therapeutic method cheapens what happens when forgiveness actually takes place. And I'll use this as an example. Suppose two people stole money from you, and later they're, they're both caught, and the one is repentant and does his best to pay you back. The other person never expressed any regret. In fact, you heard he brags about how much he made off with. And in both cases, it is the Christian's responsibility to offer grace and stand willing to forgive. Only the repentant offender opens that package of grace or that gift and is forgiven. To say that both are forgiven diminishes what happened when, with the first person that was repentant and with whom the relationship was restored. The unrepentant thief was graciously offered forgiveness, but he chose not to open the gift, and therefore reconciliation becomes impossible. And then, so that's the first danger. The second danger is that therapeutic forgiveness attempts to redefine how people understand how God forgives. Um, If therapeutic forgiveness works, then maybe we begin to wonder, is that how God forgives? Is God's forgiveness gracious or self-seeking somehow? Is God's forgiveness born out of some selfish motive that he has? <clears throat> so that, that's kind of one danger. It starts redefining what forgiveness actually is. And then number three, another danger, therapeutic forgiveness suggests that some people may even need to forgive God. This is another Smeed's quote. Would it bother God too much if we found our peace by forgiving him for the wrongs we suffer? I believe, yes, he would mind. God is perfect and holy and in no way in need of our forgiveness. Now, to be sure, there are times when we feel maybe angry with God, as in the case of Job, but he repented of it. He, he never forgave God. And number four, another danger results in cheap grace and a reluctance to identify and name evil. Um, it, it can result in people supposing they're saved when they have never repented and believed. So the church and Christians must identify and name evil, not declare that all must be unconditionally forgiven. And the Fifth danger is that therapeutic forgiveness doesn't prepare Christians for persecution and evil that they may face. When horrific evil takes place, do we really think the therapeutic method will work? Telling someone who's been tortured that to just automatically, unconditionally forgive and pardon their torture may not lend the results we hope. Better to counsel them that with God's help and through the aid of his spirit, they may offer, they may offer their torturer forgiveness, recognizing that if their torturer never repents, that they may face judgment, God's judgment. <clears throat> and then there's one last, and this is an exhaustive, one last danger is that it discourages healing within Christian communities. 
it makes it easy to distance ourselves from those who have offended us. And that's not an exhaustive list. So at this point, I hope I've established at least a reasonable case that biblical forgiveness must be conditioned upon repentance. And we don't have the time to, to define repentance, but the short answer is that it, it, it's, it's a turning and a, and a changing and a recognition that what was being done was sin and a changed heart and life. And one, one last, um, I guess, support for that view is that Matthew 18 clearly lays out a method of church discipline. And if forgiveness were always completely unconditional, there would be no need for such a process. Well, let's, let's look at the, the rebuking that's mentioned. And, and we don't have time to cover everything, obviously, but it says, take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. So we're commanded to rebuke the brother who sins against us. Now, who does this include? Who, who has the authority to do this? Um, should a child rebuke his parent? Should a wife rebuke her husband? Should an employee rebuke his employer? You know, at, at first it seems like if you're in a submissive role, you're not allowed to, to rebuke. Um, but there is no qualification in Scripture that, you know, these, these people can and, and this list persons can't. So I would, I would argue that um, a child, a wife, an employee can remain respectful and continue to obey all biblical requirements while confronting another about his or her wrongdoing. And, and in fact, it actually shows respect and faithfulness by doing so. Of course, the authority, the response may not be what, what you want. It could be anger. They could misuse their authority. And, but, you know, the anticipated response of authority is not our concern, but rather to obey God's command, to seek forgiveness and reconciliation. Further, if this authority is your brother or sister in the church, you may find it necessary to pursue the course laid out in Matthew 18. It is clear that the path of forgiveness sometimes involves suffering and loss. To say I can't rebuke because that would not be submissive is to play one of God's commands against another. God's commands rightly interpreted never conflict. Our duty is not to determine what the response of the other person may be. It is simply to obey, and even when the process of forgiveness costs us, we must not forget that it costs God his own son to forgive us. And, of course, keeping in mind that reconciliation is always the end goal. So 
the obvious next question is, must we then go chasing our brothers and sisters around for every offense, demanding that they repent of their sins against us? Must there be rebuking, repenting, forgiving over everything that happens? Well, I don't think so. God has provided a means for handling the multitude of offenses that we commit against one another, but it is not by forgiveness. And the verse on the wall, 1 Peter 4, 8, it's written a little bit different. And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. So we could, we could say that only those offenses which result in an unreconciled condition need forgiveness. And there have been people who tried to make lists. You know, this, this list of offenses require, you know, the process of forgiveness. But this list over here gets covered with love. Well, that's just not very helpful. Um, to say that, you know, this list is covered and this one isn't, it's just misleading and unhelpful. Every situation is unique. Some people are obviously more sensitive than others. Um, but if we choose to cover an offense by love, we need to be honest with ourselves that we have, in fact, covered it. You know, sometimes we can tell ourselves that we have, but in reality, we're still unreconciled. So how do, what are some rules and how do we know what to drop? Um, there was a story, kind of a sad, ridiculous story, I don't if I have time to go over this. Um, I'll just read it quickly because if I try to summarize it, I'll mess it up. It started out simply as complicated things often do. On a night long ago, Dennis O'Brien walked into a restaurant called The Mousetrap. He was looking for friends. When he found them, he turned to walk out. A cashier stopped him. Apparently, O'Brien had misplaced a red tab that the restaurant issued to its customers to keep track of their food and drinks. The mousetrap required a $5 fee for lost tabs, O'Brien was told. It could have ended there, but it didn't. O'Brien could have paid the fee, but he wouldn't. The restaurant could have let him go, but it wouldn't. On that night, February 29, 1980, O'Brien, who was then a University of Virginia graduate student from pharmacology, screamed that paying anything would violate his rights because he had eaten nothing and drunk nothing. At the mousetrap's request, he was taken by police to the Charlottesville jail. There, a magistrate refused to issue an arrest warrant, and O'Brien was released. O'Brien could have let the matter drop right there. His indignation justified by the magistrate, but he demanded a printed apology from the restaurant and threatened to sue. O'Brien's lawsuits eventually were dismissed for various reasons, writing another possible ending to the incident. But the mousetrap sued O'Brien after he had moved. O'Brien failed to show up for the trial, and without O'Brien in the courtroom, the jury awarded $60,000 in damages to the restaurant. The prosecutor said O'Brien's to blame for his problems. All he had to do all these years was come and tell the judge the story. He knew the suit was coming. Had he come to the judge, the judge would have reopened it. 
He didn't tell anybody he was in town. He just decided he was going to be clever, I guess. O'Brien didn't pay the judgment, and the prosecutor pursued him in Massachusetts court. O'Brien said that the matter still was not decided when he left the country for New Zealand in 1984. For nearly seven years, O'Brien found peace from the mousetrap suit, but the search for O'Brien had not ended. On a cool New Zealand evening last October, an officer of the court appeared on O'Brien's doorstep. He carried papers saying O'Brien, who is now a 42-year-old lecturer in pharmacology at the Central Institute of Technology in Trentham, still owed the $60,000 judgment plus interest, and it had grown to $156,000. Can you believe it? A hot-headed college student set out to make a point about a $5 tab. And because he insisted on proving that he was right, he ended up fleeing to the other side of the world with that huge debt hanging over his head. Ironically, O'Brien later discovered that he had the tab in his pocket the entire time. Just reading it, I wish that I could have been there to say, here, I'll pay the $5. <laughs> so, a ridiculous story of someone who should have just dropped it. <clears throat> How many times do we pursue something because of the principle of the thing? And I've myself been guilty of that. Um, quickly, just a few quick questions to ask yourself when you've been offended. Have I examined myself yet? You know, in our Sunday school lesson today, Matthew 7, judge not that you be not judged, the plank in the eye. That's a good question to ask yourself. How sure am I that I'm right? If you find you're always right, you probably have a pride problem. You can ask yourself, how important is this? If you find that everything is important, you probably have an oversensitivity problem. You could ask, does this person have a, a behavior or pattern of behavior with this? If not, it's probably best to just drop it. What do wise people counsel me to do? And that's not an excuse to gossip, but if someone that you trust can give you some advice, would be wise. And then ask yourself, what else is going on in this person's life right now? All good reasons to let love cover a multitude of sins. Um, and probably Chris O'Neill, if he would have asked himself any of these questions, he would have probably dropped it. Um, what, if, what if you're the offender? Um, there's a couple verses in Matthew 5 where it talks about you're bringing your, bringing your gift to the altar and you, you remember that you have something against somebody or you have offended someone. It says to just leave it right there and go take care of the offense. So ideally, if there's, an unreconcil or there's unreconciliation, you're both heading and meeting in the middle to take care of it. So just a quick, I, I, we're out of time, but just a quick recap. The litmus test of a true disciple of Christ is the ability to graciously offer forgiveness. 
Forgiveness is a promise, a commitment not to remember someone's sin by not bringing it up to them, to others, or to yourself. It's buried. Committing to forgive a brother and then bringing it up again is not forgiving. Forgiveness is conditioned upon the repentance of the offender. And forgiveness is inextricably connected to reconciliation. And lastly, love will cover a multitude of sins. So God bless us all as we seek to love one another and go through the sometimes painful process of forgiving one another as God has loved and graciously forgiven each one of us. God bless you.